Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. We are thinking this morning about heaven. And we are nearing the end, we're not at the end, of our seven-part series on the book of Revelation where the text tells us to behold something. Lord willing, next Sunday, Brother Tyler will close out that series by thinking about the seventh of those things, this being the sixth of those seven. Every sermon that a preacher presents hopefully is one that is that is challenging and helpful. But I'm excited to preach this morning because I get to preach about heaven. And we get to think about beholding that home of the soul as we so often sing about it. Margaret Cagle wrote these words. Someday I'll shed this mortal flesh and fly away to my heavenly home, leaving behind this old world and in sin no more will I roam. The closer I get to that goal, I think of heaven more and more. How will it be when I arrive upon that celestial golden shore? Yes, the gates are made of pearl and the streets are made of gold. But also God's word tells us that the half has never yet been told. Will my loved ones meet me there when I arrive on that glad day? Or will my Savior greet me first when I arrive at my home to stay? Will I have to wait in line to see my dear Savior's face? Or will I see him just shortly on my arrival in that place? Am I too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good? I must be about God's business and work the way I should. Still, I am so very anxious to see my dear Savior's face. I want to thank him for his love and for his matchless grace. If you are a Christian, heaven is one of those things that you think about from time to time. And I dare say the longer we are Christians, the more we think about heaven the more deeply we long to go there, and the more the anticipation of it fills our soul. And so I think it is only fitting that one of the things that we are told in the book of Revelation to behold is heaven. We're going to be using those first four verses of Revelation chapter 21 for our text. And those four verses are not meant to answer every curiosity we may have about heaven. In fact, there are other things in Scripture that fill in more details about heaven. But just to confine our thoughts this morning to those four verses, I want us to consider three things about heaven that should make us want to not only consider it here, but to behold it in reality when this life is over. Number one, I want us to realize that in heaven, when we think of our relationship with God, separation is no more. As John looks at this vision unfolding, he sees, verse 1 tells us, a new heaven and a new earth. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled about what exactly that phrase means. But I want to notice something found later in verse 1 that really, to me, is even more exciting when we understand it. Because the end of verse 1 tells us that the sea was no more. Now, taken by itself, that may seem like a very odd detail, Maybe even an unimportant detail until we put it back in the full context 
of the entire book of Revelation. Because when you go all the way back to Revelation chapter 4, which, by the way, is a text that we have referred to three or four times in the series, at least, of lessons, you remember that John is being given a glimpse of the throne room of God. And in that vision, there's a little detail found in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6, where we're told, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, the fact that Revelation chapter 4 and that throne room scene has all sorts of lights and rainbows and jewels and things, it shouldn't surprise us that there's something that's like glass or crystal. You just get more picture of, of fire and light and power and all those sorts of things. But it's not that that, play, that plays the key role. It's where it's located that plays the key role. Did you notice that the verse Revelation 4, 6 tells us that that sea of glass was before the throne of God? So what? Folks, even in that vision, as John was able to peer behind the door, if you will, and see the throne room of God, there was still a separation between him and God. There was still a distance there that John could not go across. But when the new heaven and the new earth are revealed, in other words, when we are in heaven, that sea is no more. There is nothing that separates us from God in heaven There is no more sea to go across, if you will. We will be, as we used to sing sometimes, face to face with him. But that's further emphasized in the same text down in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, where our key word is found, that word behold. If you notice verse 3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. As their God. Three times in that one verse, you have that little word with, that we will be with God. Now, I don't know why the English Standard Version and some other translations use the phrase dwelling place in that, that verse. You may be reading this morning from the King James or other translations that use the word tabernacle. And that's the idea behind this word, that God will tabernacle, if you will, with his people. It harkens all the way back to the Old Testament, where God told his people to build that tabernacle, that tent. In the wilderness. But it wasn't just a place of worship. You may remember if you go back to the Old Testament and study the tabernacle, where it was was almost as important as what it was. Because when the people were going about in the wilderness, every time they set up that tabernacle, it was right in the middle of the camp. It was right in the middle of the people. And so here the people were in Old Testament times, out in the wilderness, in a frightening place, a scary place. And where was God? Right in their midst, right in the middle of them. And you fast forward to the time of Revelation. And you have Christians who are going through times of persecution and difficulty. And they're frightened. They may not be in a literal wilderness, but it's as if they're in the wilderness of life. And what's the reminder? That God is with them. But that then when they are in heaven, they can be in the full presence of God. It is one of the great promises of all Scripture that though we know God here, we will be face to face with him in eternity. You know, the, the promise of God's presence is regular throughout Scripture. You can think of other passages. But in the Old Testament, the law in Leviticus 26 and verse 12 stated, I will walk among you and will be your God. The prophets, one example, Ezekiel 36 and verse 28, God said, you shall dwell in the land that I gave a give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. 
And then, of course, to his faithful followers, Jesus said in Matthew 28 and verse 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the world or the end of the age. And you know as well as I do, there are many other passages that give the same promise and the great teaching. But these are enough to remind us that the presence of God was always a reminder of the faithful, the law, the prophets, and now the New Testament. But how much more will that be true when the sea is no more? And when God will dwell with them, we will be with him forever. And separation will be no more. Number two, I want you to behold heaven and consider the fact that it is beautifully prepared. Don't you love the description found in verse, the end of verse two, where that new city is described as prepared as a bride adorned for her husband? That imagery is so vivid, but it also it builds emotion within us because it helps us to see in some way the beauty of heaven. But I want you to consider for a moment with me why that imagery is used. Why this imagery of a bride and her husband is used. Why, why would John see that? Why would that vision be there in that way? Why would he describe it that way? There are a lot of implications. You could add to this list, I'm sure. But let me give you three. First is obviously the preparation itself. That's found in the verse itself. You know, brides-to-be in our culture spend so long thinking about every last little detail of their wedding day. They, they put an incredible amount of, of thought into that. I remember when Lee and I got married. I, I, I kid to this day, the only thing I got to pick was the girl and my cake. That was it. She got to pick everything else. The food, the clothes, the, the what makeup, the flowers. Now, I got the best into that because I got the girl. But, it, but it's, you know, it, it's a, remarkable how much thought is put into every last little detail. But how much more is thought about that one moment when the groom is going to see her for the first time? The hair has to be just right, the makeup, the dress, the, the flowers, everything has to be just right for that moment when he lays eyes on her for the first time. But in the first century culture, when Revelation was written, weddings were more than just a, a one-day thing. You know, now in our culture, quite often, you'll have a, a re- rehearsal maybe and a meal, maybe on a Thursday night or a Friday night, and then, then a ceremony maybe on a Friday evening or a Saturday afternoon. And pretty much from the time everybody gets together for the rehearsal until the reception is done, 24 hours at most has passed. That was not the case in the first century culture. In the first century culture, weddings had all sorts of feasts and banquets and parties and get-togethers and often last a week or even more if a family had some means or was part of royalty. And the bride had to think about, how am I going to prepare for this feast and that banquet and this get-together? But that's not what's said in this verse, is it? It doesn't say she's adorned as for that banquet. She's adorned for her husband. Even in that culture, with all the parties and get-togethers and banquets, John sees in this vision a place that's prepared as a bride is thinking about that moment. When she sees the groom, or the groom sees her, and in some places, in that, sometimes in that culture, when the groom would literally see her for the first time. Because quite often in that culture, they didn't date like we do today. They didn't get all googly-eyed before the wedding day. Sometimes it was the first time a husband and wife had ever seen each other. I remember my dad telling a story of being in India on a mission trip one time. He actually took a picture of it. I wish I could, I should have thought about it. Maybe have a, if he still had it where he could scan it or something. But he was in a marketplace one day and looked across and there were beautiful curtains in the middle of that marketplace and someone told him, oh, there's a wedding going on over there. And he began to ask questions about it. And the course of that questioning, he remembers to this day someone saying, oh, and by the way, 
that's the first time he's ever seen her in his life because they're from different villages. But can you imagine the thought that young lady put into that moment? That's what heaven is pictured as. It's the place that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. John 14 and verse 2. That's why that imagery can be used. But I also suggest to you the imagery could be used because marriage speaks of enduring love. All sorts of things in our world are prepared for, but marriage is the one that most symbolizes love that endures. And even that takes preparation. But God's plan for marriage, of course, is not not just one man and one woman. God's plan for marriage is one man and one woman together for life. When that man or that woman say, I do in our culture, or in other cultures may say something else, or may sign a document, or whatever is done in the culture, when they do those things, God seals that marriage in a covenant And he expects them not just to stay together. He expects them to be dedicated and committed to one another throughout life. That's why this imagery could be used of heaven. It endures. Heaven is forever and forever. Jesus does not just love people here in this life. There is love in heaven forever and ever. It's a picture of enduring love. But then also, this imagery could be used because it takes both sides for this truth to be as manifest as possible. This was hard for me to think of how to word it. It may be awkward still. Here's what I mean. Just as it takes a husband and a wife for there to be a marriage, so we often used to say that heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. God, Christ, is preparing heaven, and it's beautiful. But it takes both for, there to, for heaven to be as beautifully manifest as possible. You know, there are a lot of people who teach, or at least they live like, that everybody's going to heaven. At least most people are going there. That's what seems to be thought. But we know from Scripture that just isn't true. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 very clearly contains that contrast of the broad and easy way that leads to destruction. And Jesus went on to say that many are going there. And then the contrast is given that narrow and difficult is the way that leads to life. And few find it or go there. We need to make sure that we are prepared and that others are prepared as well. But can you imagine the preparations of that place? Can you imagine the beauty? I know that Revelation goes on, in fact, later in this very same chapter, to describe the streets of transparent gold and gates made of pearl. We sung about some of those things this morning And they're beautiful. But we also understand that that's not literal. It's not literal gold and literal pearl and literal jewels. It's just to give us a sense of trying to grasp how beautiful it really is with the best imagery John had at his disposal. Nothing can really cause us to understand just how beautiful it is. And I know that for one very simple reason. If John 14 is true, where Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. If that's true, And if it is true that Jesus is divine, he is God. And if it is true that he has been making those preparations for 2,000 years, folks, we can rightfully sing how beautiful heaven must be. We can't imagine it. It is beautifully prepared. Number three, I want us all to behold heaven simply because it's like nothing you've ever experienced before. If we were to pass around a sheet of paper this morning and say, hey, write down your 10 favorite passages in the Bible. And just pass this sheet around and everybody writes down something. And maybe you don't remember where it's found. Remember a few words from it. So you write down those phrases or something. I could almost guarantee 
that at least a handful of times on that list, Revelation 21 and verse 4 would be found. Because it's Revelation 21 and verse 4 that causes us to understand, as best we can, the absolute chasm of difference between this life and eternal life. Because verse 4 famously reads that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. It's no wonder we sung some of the songs that we sang together this morning. In reality, that one verse is, in that one verse, there is both a reversal, if you please, of this life, but also I would suggest to you that in that verse, there is a presentation of life the way it was meant to be. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when mankind sinned, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, as we often describe it, death came into the world. And from that moment on, all of us have lived in a world that even on our best days, we still don't know what it's like to live in a world that doesn't have some suffering in it. It doesn't have some pain and heartache and difficulty. We're reminded of that at every funeral, every pain, every tear, every time our heart breaks. Heaven reverses that. Not only are those things taken away, but anything that could cause them are taken away. But I also suggest to you that in that verse, there is a presentation of the way life was meant to be. Nine times in Revelation chapters 20, 21, and 22, you find the word life. Each of those times you find it in a phrase, uh, book of life, tree of life, or river of life. But what's interesting is that each of those nine times, the word translated life is not a word that only means breathing air and having brain activity. In other words, it's not a word that just means existing. The word there is, has come to us more often as a name. You may know someone named Zoe. More technically, it's Zoe. But the word Zoe or Zoe, it does mean life. But you know what it really means? The word literally means the fullness and the essence of life. Folks, heaven is a place where we will first, for the first time, understand what life was meant to be. We will have full life. We will have the, the true depths of the essence of life. And that's why John could end verse 4 with that absolutely beautiful phrase that the former things have passed away. The word passed away, apokomai, apo means away from, erkomai means to come. John literally said the former things have gone out from this place. How beautiful is that? They've gone out from this place. If you read Revelation 21 verse 4 very carefully, it is as if, by contrast, this life is only tears and pain and difficulty. Now, we know that's not the case because we all have smiles on our face from time to time. We all have peace from time to time. We all have joy from time to time. We all have good things. But compared to heaven, it's as if this life is, as some people used to describe it, the veil of tears. David Roper, in his commentary on Revelation, very beautifully wrote this paragraph. He said... If someone could convince people that there was an island where just one of the blessings of verse 4 was true, a place where there would be no tears, no death, or no pain, they would sell everything they had to secure transportation to that haven. How strange it is that there is a place where all these promises are true, and yet many remain indifferent as to whether or not they go there. End quote. Nearly every time we go 
to a funeral, for example, or a memorial service, we are reminded of this concept. But folks, I want us to think more deeply and broadly than that. This should be something that we think about not only at a time of that, that level of loss. Every time we so much as feel the tiniest tinge of pain. Every time we, we shed a tear because somebody else hurt our feelings. Every time we even so much as read bad news. Any and every time we hurt in any capacity, we should long for heaven because it won't be like this there. It's like nothing you've ever experienced before. A few weeks ago, Dr. Stephen Hawking, a renowned physicist from Oxford, passed from this life. He's a brilliant scientist, but he was one who was maybe most well-known in our part of the world as an atheist and very outspoken as such. He wrote many things and said many things about atheism compared to religions in general and specifically Christianity. And one of those statements, he said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. And then he added, there is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story of people afraid of the dark. Now, I didn't choose that quotation to make fun of Dr. Hawking in the weeks following his death. Not at all. In fact, I saw a lot of Christians on social media and elsewhere piling on in the hours and days after Dr. Hawking's death, saying things like, oh, he's finding out there's a God now, and things like that. But folks, that should not be our mindset. If I may preach a mini-sermon, because Ezekiel 8, uh, 33 and verse 11 tells us that God does not find pleasure in the death of the wicked. Instead, I chose that quotation because of how sad it is. Can you imagine being so brilliant, so brilliant, but throughout your life, truly believing that when you die, that's just it. That's just it. There's no more you. There's nothing beyond this life. Can you imagine that being your mindset? Listen, I've never seen heaven. None of us have yet. But because not only of Revelation 21, because of Scripture itself, because of faith which is more than just a a wish, because of hope that is more than just a wish, because I know it's true, I can with total confidence sing, there's a land that is fairer than day, and by faith I can see it afar. But as much as I long for heaven, and as much as I lean on passages like we studied for a moment this morning, when I read them, it's almost as if God is saying, you haven't seen anything yet. When I exchange life's rugged cross for eternity's crown, when my soul is rid of sorrow, my burdens all laid down, I will trade these rags so wretched for a gown of heaven's white. And when I take the hand of Jesus, everything will be all right. No more rough roads will be traveled. No more thorns will pierce my side. I'll be granted total healing when all heaven's gates swing wide. No more poverty or sadness will have my thoughts ensnared, for I will ever rest with Jesus in the mansion he's prepared. No more tears will wet night's darkness. No more loneliness or dread. No more fearing of the future, nor of what may lie ahead. No more guilty pain of faulting. No pangs of yesterday, for I'll have reached life immortal in the true and living way. When I exchange life's rugged cross for eternity's crown, when my soul is rid of sorrow, my burdens all laid down, I will trade these rags so wretched 
for a gown of heaven's white. And when I take the hand of Jesus, everything will be all right. We can confidently sing, by faith I can see it afar. But I came this morning to ask each one of us, will you literally behold heaven? I wouldn't be doing my job, not as a preacher, I wouldn't be doing my job as a Christian if I didn't remind each of us that the one who went to prepare that place also tells us how to get there. And he makes it clear. And he makes it simple. If we will simply believe in him, except you believe that I am he, he said, you shall die in your sins. He said that we must repent or we will perish. Repenting just means to, to turn around, to change our life, put, put the sinful life behind us and, and change and go forward. He said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Are you willing to confess, speak about Christ? And then he said, the one who believes and is baptized is the one who will be saved. Baptism is an immersion in water, a burial in water, where we contact what he did for us. I wouldn't be doing my job as a Christian if I didn't ask this morning, have you ever done that? If you haven't, it's clear you won't behold heaven. But don't you want to? And I wouldn't be doing my job this morning as a Christian. If I didn't remind all of us who are Christians that that same one who's preparing that place also said, be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. Are you living in a way where you can with full confidence here say, by faith I can see it afar. And to know that when this life is over, your faith will become sight. I want to behold heaven. And if you want to as well, we invite you to come while we stand and sing to encourage you.